The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, let's open our Bibles. Get your Bibles out, your iPads, your iPhones, your eyelids, get them on the Word. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, we're going to look at verses uh, 8 through 14, power to witness. Oh, how we need the power of the Holy Spirit to witness to this generation. Jesus is coming back. Jesus Christ is coming soon. The angels are already on assignment from heaven. The things that are happening, developing on earth, and we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about it. And there's something very uh, powerful that we're going to address this morning about why God gives the Holy Spirit to empower us to be able to conquer this one thing. And once this one thing is conquered, the sky is the limit of God's work in and through your life. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your word this morning. I pray that we will be able to hear uh, not only a general message, but Lord, that a personal word. For every one of us must hear the voice of the Lord for this time, for this hour. We need personal direction as your sons and as your daughters, as your family, as your emissaries. Lord, that you have called to live in this time, to live in this hour, to live in this generation. And for such a time as this. So Lord, may we hear you and then embrace it and then run with the vision that you give to us. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so we're going to start off with our first life lesson. We've got a handful of them this morning. The announcement that the Spirit of God would indwell each believer, not some believers, but each individual believer, and that's very special. But let's start back in chapter 1, uh, let's say verse 6. Jesus uh, talking to his disciples, and, and after this it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So look, every Jewish person 2,000 years ago, when they were looking, about, looking for the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah is going to bring the kingdom. And he's going to bring the kingdom, restore the kingdom to Israel. The Messiah would sit on the throne of David. He would be king of a territorial Israel that would rule in the world and the whole earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So now Jesus has just resurrected from the dead. He's literally conquered every enemy that there is. And now finally he's triumphed over death himself personally. So they're like, okay, now Lord, will you go sit on the throne and the kingdom of heaven? When, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Then he says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. Now there are some that have taken that to mean, well, the church should never know the times and seasons. But that's not 
exactly true. In fact, the rest of the New Testament goes on to talk about times and seasons. In fact, many of Jesus' teachings were about knowing the signs and seasons. He says, will the Son of Man find faith when he comes again? It's interesting in the Old Testament to the prophet Daniel, God gave divine revelation about both the first and the second coming of the Messiah and when the kingdom would come from heaven and be manifest upon the earth. At the very end of the book of Daniel, the Lord says to him, now seal up the vision, seal up this knowledge and information, write it and put it in scripture uh, but the understanding of it, he said, will not be known. It won't be understood until the time of the end. In the end, he said, the wise will understand. In other words, the generation that would see the very things that Daniel talked about and the description of what the world would look like, they would begin getting divine revelation from heaven. They would be able to understand it. And they would realize, whoa, this is the time. I believe this is the time Daniel was talking about. This is the age and this is the hour that the wise will understand the times and seasons. Can I hear an amen? So be ready and be prepared. But then in verse 8, Jesus went on to say this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in the Old Testament, the power of the Holy Spirit would fall upon a few people. It might fall upon a king. It would fall upon a prophet. And, you know, the kings, even Saul would at times prophesy. David would prophesy and sing and worship the Lord. And then the Spirit would come upon prophets and they would prophesy battles, victories, what's going to happen, the future. And there were some rare individuals the Spirit would fall upon for a specific purpose that God had. For instance, Gideon. But the Holy Spirit did not come upon all people. And he certainly did not fill all the children of Israel. It was very rare. It was only certain individuals, and even when the Holy Spirit would come, it was temporary. It was only for a season, and then the Holy Spirit would leave. And the reason for that is there was sin, so the Holy Spirit is holy. He cannot dwell where there is sin. But there were sacrifices, but the blood of bulls and goats cannot really remove sin. It can only cover over a sin, that's atonement until Jesus the Messiah came. So now this is what Jesus has done for us when Jesus, the Lamb of God, but a human being, he is the ultimate sacrifice when he died as a man for the sins of humanity upon the cross, all sins for all time were paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, that opened the door now for the first time in human history that the Holy Spirit could be poured out. He could literally come upon and come inside of each individual believer, not temporarily, but forever. And not just to a few, but to all. The same Holy Spirit that came upon the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, 
Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, all of those, the Holy, that same Holy Spirit dwells in you as a believer. And he will never leave you and never forsake you. And guess what that means? Just as the prophets could also hear the voice of the Lord, you and I individually now have the capacity to hear the voice of the Lord. Obviously, the Spirit takes the Word of God and makes it real, but He also is personal. He's inside of each one of us, and He can lead and guide and direct us. So we need to learn to hear and listen to His voice. And especially in this time, especially in this time, we need to hear His voice because He will give individual direction, individual choices that you will need to make in the days to come. So let us make sure we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Okay, so verse 8 again. We're going to talk about verse 8 a little bit more. Notice how he gave them power. In the Greek, uh, the word for power is dunamis. Okay, everybody say dunamis. Very good. You all speak Greek now. Now, dunamis is the word that we uh, get our word dynamite from. It is also in another way of speaking where we get the word dynamic. They're a dynamic person. They have a dynamic personality. They have a dynamic ability. Uh, we describe them as dynamic. It is dunamis. It is dynamite. It's powerful. So when the Holy Spirit is given to each individual, how did he come? And here's what's interesting. Number one, he did not give them a detailed strategy. It's not like he said, okay, here we're gonna, uh, here's 10 things, everybody read this, memorize it, and that's for everybody. There is no detail because how the Holy Spirit speaks to you will be unique to you. How you uh, relate to the Holy Spirit is so personal because you're so, there's nobody else in the entire universe like you. And just like with parent with a child, each child, you know them, you learn them, you, you understand them, you communicate with them uniquely. So the Holy Spirit also will communicate to you. And that's the way you have to learn and get to know and understand how the Spirit will speak uniquely to you. Secondly, he gave each member of the kingdom the heart and mind of the king. So the Holy Spirit that is in you is going to communicate to you, impress upon you what the heart of the king of the kingdom is. He'll give you his heart. He'll give you his mind. Now, obviously, studying the word is the basis for all of that. That's where we get to know what the king, our father, has done in the past and also how he has spoken in the past and even his word being eternal the Bible is still living. He speaks to us through his word even today. So he gives us the mind and the heart of the king. Thirdly, instead of a detailed battle plan, he gave each individual soldier a mind that synchronizes with the mission and goals of our general in heaven. How many of you can understand and agree with me we're in a big time spiritual battle, a, a warfare royale, right? So we're his army. This earth was made by the Lord. It has been usurped since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and forfeited much 
of the world. In fact, to the devil, the devil says he's the prince and the power of the air, but, but he's a squatter. <laughs> it belongs to God, and now God is reclaiming it, reclaiming it, and he is using his sons and daughters. We're like the children of Israel going into land where there are squatters, and we're to put our foot on every place and promise that God leads us to, and the devil must flee, and he must leave in Jesus' name. All that ground God has given to us, amen? Now, the Greek term for power, I wanted to put into your notes just briefly here, if you went to a Strong's Concordance, you look up the Greek word power, dunamis, what else does it mean? There are many layers to the meanings of each one of the words in Scripture. So since the Holy Spirit is in you, I wanted to begin to define uh, the, the words which give us layers of what is available to each and every one of you. Number one, force. The Holy Spirit is a force. He is, has tremendous force, the power of God. Now, it also means miraculous power. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. He is the very person of God. He is equal to God. His power is supernatural and it is miraculous. And it dwells inside of you. And there is a way for us to learn as we are growing as disciples of the Lord, as we learn to lean into the Holy Spirit, as we learn to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, as we begin doing what he teaches us in praying for others and laying on of hands and anointing with oil and exercising our delegated authority and power in the name of Jesus that is far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and named that is named. I'm telling you the miraculous should be the normal experience for every child of God, not only to you, not only in you, but also through you to others. And I believe that's what we've been seeing and experiencing here. When we have communion, we pray, and you guys are the ones laying on your hands. They're not coming up to me. I mean, I pray for some like that, but there are you. You are laying hands and you are praying, and we are getting testimonies of God hearing and answering your prayers, anointing you, using your faith and miraculous power being manifest, and then ability. You all have abilities, and some of us think, well, yeah, I was kind of born, I got this ability for music, I got a, the ability to make money or do business or have this ability, that ability. But we think of them as natural abilities. But no child of God has natural abilities alone. They're all spiritual abilities. They have been enabled by God. Every gift and ability you have, every capacity you have has been given to you by your Father in heaven. It's a gift from God. It can be sanctified. It can be anointed. It can be dedicated for the use of the glory of God. And it can be lifted as an ability for a supernatural imprint upon the lives that you come in contact with. Force, miraculous power, ability, strength. How many of you feel weak, <laughs> weary of the ongoing battles and the daily grind of life? And then as believers who are saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and have the hope of heaven, we constantly every day wake up to another battle with the world, three things, the world, 
the flesh and the devil. But the Holy Spirit who abides within you is a source of overcoming strength. His strength never wears out. It never is diminished. His strength and his power and glory are the same and remain constant forever and ever. Look at the next word, violence. (laughs) Did you ever think the power of the Holy Spirit could be used in a violent form? As a matter of fact, yes. Who in the world would God be violent with? His enemies, the devil, the demons, the forces of this world, the gods of this age. He is almighty, he is all powerful, and he is full of strength, and he is violent against them to throw them out, to literally uproot them and get them out of the way. And then finally, he's mighty. Mighty, 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 mighty. The battle is not yours, but the battle is the Lord's. We don't fight in our own ability and strength. We are imbued with the power from on high and he is never weary. He is never tired. He never loses. He goes from victory to victory to victory. Almighty. So it also means one's ability or capacity, being able to do something, a specific ability. Now, whatever that specific ability may depend on the context. If the task was to lift a great weight, what this means is the ability would be physical strength. If the task is to defeat an army, the capacity is that of a skilled general. You know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. So the Lord's promise of the gift of the dunamis, dynamic, dynamite power of the Holy Spirit is indefinite. It's forever. In other words, whatever is required for you to fulfill your divine assignment is available by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Whatever you need, whenever you need it. And by the way, all of us, you were chosen. You didn't choose to live in this time. Your dad in heaven decided of all the generations and of all the times and of all the places for you to be alive. He chose you specifically to be alive at this hour in this time. And I I count it a high privilege. We are very privileged to see the things that we're seeing take place today. We are highly favored, highly honored. And I will tell you again, you know, The Bible, you know, very simply, it talks about how in the latter years and in the latter days, Ezekiel chapters 37 and 38, the latter years and the latter days before the great day of the Lord, when the kingdom of heaven will come from heaven to the earth, that God would resurrect the Jewish people who are like dead bones, scattered, you know, it's like the bones had fallen apart, not even skeletons, they're just fragments of bones stuck in the sand in this tremendous valley. And God told the prophet Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel said, Lord, you know, you know if they can live or not. And he said, speak to the bones and command them to come together. And he spoke and he prophesied and they came back together and they all stand up. 
And we don't need to guess how to interpret it because God interpreted his own vision that he gave to Ezekiel. He said, this is the whole house of Israel in the latter days. So the resurrection of the Jewish people, May 14th, 1948, is the biggest bullseye prophetic sign of our times that the king of kings is on his way back. So now, here, so now that, that's 70-some years ago, right? So here we are in the year 2020. Okay, what's next? We know, the Bible tells us there will come a peace treaty between Israel and her neighbors. And in that peace treaty, there will be a brief time where it seems like it's working and it's, it's going to be peace, and then sudden destruction will come. I think it's interesting, and I told all of you, when we, for those who were here and part of this church, we just finished a nice long journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We were in Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus was giving an outline to the disciples of what the last days would look like. And as he did that, we were seeing what was happening, and in Matthew 24, 25, right in there, it was on January the 28th, January the 28th, that the United States proposed a peace plan for the Middle East and for Israel and her neighbors. And, you know, while parts of it seem good, tragically, the end of it all is about dividing the land. The prophet Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, God basically says to the nations of the world, okay, I want all of the kings of the nations of the earth line up. I am at war with you. Why? Because how you have treated my people, my inheritance, Israel, and two, because you divided my land. So listen very carefully. I'm telling you, January 28th marked, we, we passed over. We're in, we're in some uncharted waters. And immediately after that January 28th, 28th announcement, all of a sudden the virus is beginning to really land. And after that, social unrest, and then global unrest, and then economic, and it continues to go through all of this. So I am telling you, as your pastor and shepherd, I believe that this is the peace deal that Daniel the prophet spoke about, and it is really the sign that Jesus Christ is coming back very soon. So wake up, get fired up, get ready, get prepared. The king is on his way. So let's go on. Again, I still want to talk about verse 8 a little bit more. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you with power, dunamis, and what's the power for? What is the presence of the Holy Spirit for? That you might be witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me. So it's witnessing about Jesus uh, in your notes, I want you, or in your Bible, underline the word witness, because the word witness in Greek is the word martis. It is where we get our English word martyrdom from. Jesus, it, you know, so this being translated into literal Greek is saying, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you with dynamic, dynamite power in order that you might be martyrs witnessing about me, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the first century Greek writers understood the word martis. Here's what the original meaning of the word and how it was used. It was used in the court of law. 
It was a legal term describing someone who was called to go before the court in a court case, a legal case, to sit in the box and literally give witness to a situation that is now a legal claim. Are you, did you witness this person? Did you witness this event? Did, what did you see? What did you hear? You are a legal witness. Well, the original Greek word for witness in a legal court case was martis. So here's what happened with the early church, starting with Peter. When preaching in Pentecost, as we'll see, who had been afraid, look what they did to Jesus, and he was so terrified, he lied, he betrayed the Lord, uh, he, he was hiding. And then all of a sudden, we're gonna see in Acts chapter two, that same little scaredy cat Peter is back in Jerusalem with no fear, preaching his heart out, saying, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified is risen from the dead, and he is both Lord and Messiah of all the Jews. Repent and believe on him. What happened to Peter? Peter became a martyr. He became a witness. And the boldness that came upon him was he was not afraid. Even if they said, you cannot preach that message about Jesus being the Messiah or we'll kill you. And Peter is like, okay, so fine. You kill me, then I go immediately and I'm in heaven, I'm with Jesus, I got my new body, I'm good with that, let's go. That's basically what it was, being a witness. So for the next two centuries, Rome tried to put fear on the Christian witnesses and martyrs to snuff out their message and bring fear upon them and they fed them to lions and they tortured them and they beheaded them and they killed them. And for almost 200 years, they became witnesses, martyrs, martyrs. And therefore martyrdom came to be known as those who are, who are so convinced that what they're witnessing is true, they're willing to pay with their own lives. That is what the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is all about. God is wanting us to get to the place where we're not afraid. We're even willing to lay down our lives. Can I hear an amen on that? <laughs> Very quiet, like, well, I think amen. <laughs> Let me say this to you. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were very religious. They were openly practicing their religion. What the Pharisees and Sadducees lacked was an intimate, personal relationship with the living God. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power. The Pharisees and the Sadducees talked a lot about religion and the Jewish religion and Judeo values. They persisted in Judeo values, but they did not persist in a vital, personal intimate relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen, it was the religious people who betrayed Jesus and wanted him crucified. Why? Because religion does not want to see the manifest presence of God. Religion likes rules, they like laws, they like morality, they like the practice of religion, they like the freedom of religion, but they do not like the manifest, miraculous presence of God or listening to the voice of the Lord. 
He who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Therefore, the universal result of following God with all your heart, loving him with all your soul, with all your mind and all of your strength is martyrdom. Because they cannot handle people who have a relationship with God. That is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees killed all the prophets. Because they heard the voice of God, they spoke the voice of God, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, they declared what God was showing them, and religion does not like that. They did not want to hear from God. They just wanted to have the free practice of their religion. So I want to say to you this morning, the practice of religion is not enough. Or having a resurgence of religious values, Judeo-Christian values, is not enough. The freedom of religion is not enough. Cultural Christianity is not enough. We need those who are so filled and so passionate and so on fire with the Holy Spirit, we witness continually that Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You can know him. You can enter a relationship with him. You can be set free from him. You can be delivered by your fears and you will never be the same. Can I hear an amen and a hallelujah? Now, let me share with you this. The book of Job tells us about, you know, it starts off with uh, in heaven and, the, and God, and devil are, God and the devil are having a conversation about this poor little guy on earth, Job. He doesn't know they're having a conversation about him. God is bragging on Job. Have you looked at my servant Job? Man, that guy's awesome. Look how good he is. What a good man Job is. He loves me. And the devil's like rolling his eyes like, of course, you've so blessed him. Why wouldn't he love you? Then he made an accusation. You know what? You take that hedge away, take all those blessings away. He'll curse you. He doesn't really love you. He just loves you for all the stuff you give to him. And God is, I'm paraphrasing, basically goes, okay, you think so? You're on. And God then draws lines and limits and he allows the devil to go so far to take away some of that protection and hedge. And he comes. Now listen to what the devil did. As you read the book of Job, there are two things that he did. Number one, the devil brought sickness to Job. The devil is behind sickness. And I believe the devil is behind this coronavirus. He brought boils all up and down Job's body. That wasn't from God. That was from the devil. And he brought that sickness upon him. The second thing that the devil did to Job is he brought natural disasters. He had all of his sons and their daughters and, and uh, kids and a house. And then a storm came and ruined the house and the walls and the ceiling collapsed and his kids died. That storm wasn't sent by God. That was sent by the devil. And then, you know, by the way, as you hear this story, how many of you are not so excited about God maybe bragging about you, you know, up in heaven, right? But it's interesting, why did God allow in, you know, the devil to do anything? And I think we find the reason why. Job says, when all of the, because God allowed the devil to get, you know, only to go so far. He couldn't take his life, but he did this and he did that. Disease, sickness, and natural disasters. The story of Jesus going to the Gadarenes. Remember, Jesus is in the boat, he's asleep. And the disciples, they're in a storm and they're experienced fishermen and they go, we could die from this storm. Finally, they go and wake Jesus up. Where was Jesus headed? He was headed to the Gadarenes. 
What was in the Gadarenes? That's where the Gentiles lived. That's where idol worshipers were. That's where pagans were. The lost were. And the devil had two men that were bound by demons. And Jesus is on his way to deliver this man and then set them free and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The devil knew that. So a storm comes against them. Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm because the storm was from the devil. Jesus went anyway and he delivered that man so that he was clothed in his right mind and delivered and then left him there to share the story and the witness of Jesus the Messiah. What I want to say is this, in the book of Job, we find one of, the, why would God even allow a little bit the devil to do, go this far, that far? It says, Job says, that which I have feared most has actually come upon me. What it shows us is that a man of faith, a man in a relationship with God, a man who listened to the word of God, a man who loved and blessed his children, who followed the commands of the Lord with all of his heart, was also a, and a man of faith, was riddled with fear. And therefore, God used the devil with limits to bring his fears to the surface so that then Job would go to God and God would remove all his fears. And by the way, listen to this. When all of Job's fears that came to pass and that God was still with him and then God restored him and then literally God shows up and reveals his supernatural presence to Job. Why? Because now his fears are gone and he enters and sees the glory of God. Oh, I heard of you with my ears, but the half was not told me now that I see you with my eyes. And Job began to worship God. I believe that God is working in a similar way in this time. He wants to take all of your fears and he wants to remove them. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. The biggest threat the devil has is, I'll kill you. But as children of God, once you realize, I got eternal life, I got the Holy Spirit. The moment I die here, I'm in heaven. I see Jesus face to face. I'm with all my family there. I don't have to wake up in the world anymore, fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm with God for eternity and sharing with him. I'm good with that. Now I live every day without fear. That's what will bring revival to this nation and this world is when we are no longer afraid. There's no threat the enemy has against us. Religion is about money and power and control, and the devil knows that. And there may be a religious movement of morality. The devil loves religion. The Antichrist will give people religion, a global religion, but he won't, and, and the devil can still even be in there. Judas was among the disciples. But relationship is about intimacy with God and hearing the voice of Jesus Christ. Read with me this, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Let's read this out loud. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what will set us free. Okay, let's go to verses 9 through 11 now as we begin to wrap this up. Jesus' ascension into the cloud of glory. It says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, 
who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So they're literally on the Mount of Olives. It's the 40th day. Jesus has appeared to them for 40 days. And now on the Mount of Olives, Jesus starts going up, 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 up. And a cloud, not a natural cloud, a a glory cloud of heaven carries Jesus and he disappears from earth into the divine heavenly realms. Well, here's what's interesting. That same mountain, earlier when the temple had been destroyed and God, the people were worshiping idols in Jerusalem, it says the Shekinah light or glory of God lifted off the mercy seat and kind of took a step back. And Israel didn't cry out. They didn't repent. They didn't say, Lord, don't leave us. And then he took another step and he kept going further and further east, finally to the eastern gate of the temple itself. They still did not repent. Finally, it went all the way across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and waited for three days. Israel did nothing. Finally, the glory Ichabod departed and went up into heaven. From where? The Mount of Olives. Look at this. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 23 tells us the story. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. So this is a fulfillment of a prophecy when Jesus ascends before the disciples. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Let's read it out loud together. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Verse 14, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I love that. That's the fulfillment of the messianic description of the king going into the clouds of heaven. But here in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, we have where the second coming is going to happen. Let's read it out loud. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. Woo, I love that. A mountain is literally going to bow at the touch of the feet of its creator. This is the second triumphal entry. The first triumphal entry, he came on a little donkey. He went and was rejected and crucified, but he's coming in another triumphal entry, only this time he's on a horse and he comes with 10,000 times 10,000 of his saints. He comes as king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah to the roar of all the nations of the world, proclaiming him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he will sit on the throne of David. And from there, he will rule and he will reign for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. And you and I, his bride, shall be married together at the marriage supper of the Lamb and begin to rule and reign with him. So that's what's so beautiful and powerful and special about 
the Mount of Olives. Well, let's close with verses 12 through 14 because we're going to now leave the disciples waiting. It's the 40th day. We know that Pentecost happens on the 50th day, so they've got 10 days. They're waiting. What are they doing? They're meeting in an upper room for 10 days, waiting on the Lord, for 10 days praying. I believe the church is in a similar place. We are now today to be waiting upon the Lord, entering into prayer, waiting upon the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us that we might witness of him around the world. So it says in verse 12, and then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. By the way, that's the last time Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned but it also includes Jesus' brothers. After the resurrection, now some of Jesus' brothers who had not believed in him for the first three years of his ministry, after the resurrection, he appeared to them, and now they're in the family. They believe. One of them is James, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. But they're praying. They're waiting upon the Lord. That's why I want to exhort and encourage you guys to go to the Maranatha Chapel you know, website, go down to the Summer Harvest Call to Prayer. We need to pray and pray as never before. We need to just enter into letting the Holy Spirit move within us as we wait upon him, as we cry out to him, as we call upon him, as he brings fire and dunamis upon us so that we're ready to witness of him. Until we hear the trumpet sound, we've got to be faithful martyrs, faithful witnesses to him and of him without any fear, without any fear whatsoever. Ultimately, we're not even afraid to die because we know and I'm with the Lord. And then we'll, you know, we'll, from heaven, we'll pray for everybody else stuck on the earth, but we're gonna be with the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever, amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.